Good morning. Uh, my name is Jeff Terrell. I'm a covenant partner here, and I volunteer in tech and in Foothill Kids. <laughs> Today's scripture is found in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, and Psalm 95, verses 1 through 7. So please stand for the reading of God's word. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And now Psalm 95, verses 1 to 7. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. This is God's word. You may be seated. All right, well, when Michelle and I were on break um, uh, this last fall, in November, we, we had the opportunity to go to New York with some old college friends, really our best friends in the world. And uh, we met up with them for a few days and, and kind of did the whole fun downtown uh, Manhattan stuff and, and uh, decided we were going to go to see The Music Man starring Hugh Jackman, Wolverine of all things. And, and so one day we, uh, we went... And we went outside the theater, and if you've ever seen this on Broadway, throngs of people gather outside the theater to wait for sort of the main actors to walk out, get in their blacked out SUVs and, and drive away. And um, uh, we did that. And so uh, we, we got in, you know, we, we, we actually were one of the first ones there, and we, we stood there, and Michelle and my, her, our friend Lisa are standing up right next to us. They're elbowing out young children to keep them back. <laughs> And uh, trying to be as close as they can to Hugh Jackman until he walks by. Crowds erupt in cheers when he walks out the backstage door. And there he is. In fact, I think we have a picture uh, of there he is. Um, if you take a close look at that picture way in the background, there's me holding my phone up like an idiot. Um, <laughs> We will go to the theater, and so the fun doesn't end there. We're, we're, we're sitting in the audience, and uh, uh, my, my, our friend, Lisa, uh, she's from New Jersey, and she's not known for being quiet, and so she begins to talk uh, very boldly and, and basically telling Michelle, like, Michelle, look at my clogs. Look at these new clogs I have. She's saying this very loud, and the lady in front of her turns around and is like, oh, I love clogs. Weird, right? And and they have this, they start to have this little thing between the three of them over clogs, right? And, and having this moment and enjoying that. And five minutes later, in walks her husband. And I look up at this man. And some of you will remember uh, from Saturday Night Live fame, Kevin Nealon is her husband. And so he walks in and then I text my girls. I'm like, uh, I'm sitting behind Kevin Nealon and he's chatting us up right now. And they write back, dad, his wife is Susan Yeagley. If you ever watched uh, Parks and Rec, you, you might remember this side character named Je Jessica Wicks. And, uh, and she was, she was a, a, a recurring character on there. And uh, so here's a, a picture after the play was over. Michelle, Kevin Nealon, our friend Lisa, and Susan Yeagley. Now, um, 
I'm a little embarrassed to show you this, right? Uh, Because I really hate how people fawn over celebrities, right? Like something goofy happens to us when we get into the presence. Have you ever noticed that we actually like to, there's almost like this, this, this bragging right of, you know, degrees of separation you are from some very famous person. Well, I know, or I have a friend who knows or something like that. I actually, the church I attended before I came out here um, the family of Brad Pitt went to that church, okay? World, right? I can't tell you how many times I heard somebody completely disconnected from the family uh, use that. You know, oh, well, Brad Pitt's family goes to our church, right? And, and as though that was some big bragging, right? But we do this. And, I, and, I, and I'm embarrassed to say that because here I was, goofy in the background with my phone up, but I get it. And here's why I say that. Not because I think what I did or, or this, is, this is a good thing for us to practice, but I think it's almost something we can't help. The, because in, in, in our lives in America, this is the closest thing that we get to a sense of transcendence. You know, like, like if you were to ever go to, to England or if you ever happen to be in a place and royalty, you know, Prince Charles or William or Harry and Meghan or whatever it is, right? If they, if they walked near you, there'd, there'd be this sense of otherness, right? They, they are not me. I am not them. There is a chasm between us and there's this real sense of transcendence. That, that, that emerges in those moments. And this is the closest that some of us get to that. Um, in fact, I, I, I find it interesting when you really pay attention to it that, that this, this feeling of transcendence is beyond just, oh, we, you know, we were in the presence of a movie star or something like that. We, we spend billions of dollars. Our vacation industry is built around transcendence, right? Many of you want to go to places because of how it will make your heart swell, right? You'll stand in the presence of a mountain or look, you know, down the Grand Canyon or whatever it is. You can't own that. You can't, you, it's just, it's just the feeling that's driving you. I want to feel that. I want to know what that feels like, and so we do this with things. We do this with exotic places. We, we do this with people. And what's strange is how we take ordinary people and set them on, on a pedestal of transcendence for us. I mean, we do, this is YouTube influencers, right? Just the goofiest things that get them all kinds of people following them and watching them. We do it with politicians. I mean, weirdly, weirdly, we do this with with pastors and worship leaders. Some of you know the names of more worship leaders that have nothing to do with Foothill Church than you do the people up on the stage. You actually know their names. Does that strike you as ironic? People who are supposed to be pointing like it's all about Jesus, and all, but we pay money to go watch a worship leader lead us in worship. Now, that's not their fault. I'm saying, here, here's what I want you to hear me say. I'm, I'm not really not even here to, to criticize that as much as I am to say, why do we do that? And I want to suggest to you, it's because we can't help it. It's because there is something in our DNA, there's something in our makeup that, that makes us into incurable, insatiable worshipers. Some of you know the name David Foster Wallace, was not a believer, um, 
uh, before he died. He, he has a very famous, you know, a lot of famous speeches and, and books that he wrote, but in one of his most famous, maybe some of you have heard this, um, he was at Kenyon College, I believe it was, and he gave the graduation speech. Here, here's a little, little couple sentences from that speech. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as an atheist. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get to, is, is what to worship. Everybody says, not worshiping is not an option, even for the atheist. You and I cannot help but being people who worship. So it's just that we, we choose what to worship. So for some of you, it's sex or power, money or fame or influence or, I mean, right, the, really the possibilities are endless. Uh, John Calvin famously said that the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. We are constantly churning out something to lay our affections at, to say this is, this is, you know, th- th- this is the thing that I hold in highest esteem. We want that so bad. Now think about it. What do you worship? Who do you worship, right? Um... um because, because something is there for all of us, and I think there's some diagnostic things you can look at. Like, I think one of the ways we can know what we sort of innately worship is, is where do we run, where do we go to when we feel stress and anxiety? That's, that's probably is, is one of the idols that your heart churns out. Um, it could be food for some of you. It could be exercise. Be a lot of things. It'd be a lot of things lesser than God. What it, what's your immediate instinct when you feel like life has just sort of knocked you off balance? What do you look to to prop you up? Right, th- those are those are things that we're looking to and saying this is this is uh, this is the thing that I'm looking to for significance. This is the thing that I'm looking to to help me. Right? These are the things we worship. We can't help it. It's, it's how our heart is bent. So today, I want to talk about worship, but I want you to see that worship is a spiritual discipline. Now, you think that's weird, that's strange, because you just said it's something we can't avoid. So how is it a discipline if it's something I'm going to do whether I want to or not? The discipline is not in the act of worship per se. The discipline is in the object of worship. You follow me? Like this is where the discipline comes, is what will, who will I worship? Because you can't help worshiping, but we must discipline ourselves to worship God. So so here's all I want to do. I'm really going to answer two big questions this morning. What is worship? And we'll have some sub points under there. And then how can we grow in the spiritual discipline of worship? Okay? So what is worship? Okay, now I wanna, and when I say that, I don't mean generically how it applies to movie stars or food or, you know, sex or fame. I'm saying in the Bible, what, how, if we were sort of condense what the Bible says about worship, uh, what, what, would, what would we come up with? Well, let me, let me, before I get there, let me say this. When, when you see the word worship in Scripture, as you saw this morning in Psalm 95, not Psalm 96, all over Scripture, by the way, uh, in the Old Testament, that word literally means to bow down, Okay. To, to bow down before God, right? That's what it's calling you to. Now, that can be 
literal. I literally bow down before God. It can be metaphorical. That is that I may be positionally upright, but my heart is bowed before something. It is not so much the posture of your body as it is the posture of your heart. So I hope you can see this is far bigger, right? It's far bigger than singing. It's far bigger than what we just did at the first part of this. It's, 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 it's all of life. Not, so I, I'm not here to try and argue for that. What I want us to see is the worship of God as described in the Bible is something the Bible calls us to as a spiritual discipline. Okay, it is, a, it is a bowing down. It is a, it is a, it is a going to God. It's, it's looking and saying, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bow before him. But let me give you a definition. Okay, as I look at scripture, here's, here's the definition I would come up with, all right? That, that worship is the disciplined duty of delighting in God as revealed in scripture, both personally and congregationally. Okay, the disciplined duty of delighting in God as he's revealed in Scripture, both personally and congregationally, okay? Now, I want to I wanna pick that apart a little bit. I want to I try and, and help us understand what, what, what we're talking about that. But I want to just make note of something. We talk about something being a, a disciplined duty of delight, right? And that might feel contradictory to you. How can something that's a duty be a delight? Well, let me, let me point back to what we talked about last week. We were talking about prayer and we talked about very often it's discouraging and we don't, we, don't, we don't feel necessarily something in prayer, but we keep praying knowing that that duty of prayer, that discipline of prayer ultimately leads us into delight in prayer and certainly into the fruits of prayer, right? I can, again, I'll, I'll, I'll make it analogous to exercise. I may not like in, in the moment, going out and running a few miles. I may not like that hard workout, you know, where you feel breathless or whatever, but what I love is the, what I delight in is the fruit of that in my life, right? Whether or not that, that, that moment in time is delight, I may, I may be in a place of duty, but what I want to see is that the, the outcome of that brings great to light. Very often, duty is the pathway to delight. Discipline duty is the pathway to delight, right? Not just once something I do once, but something I do over and over and over again, okay? So, so, so I don't want you to see these things as contradictory, I want you to see these things as one leading to the other, okay? But at first, I do want you to see that it's a duty. Do you know that worship is your duty? Paul's going to say in Romans 12, 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, which is your spiritual worship, or other translations say reasonable worship, giving yourself fully to God, right? That is something that we're called to do. It's a duty. But notice this. I had you in Psalm 95, and I hope you'll open your Bibles with me and look at this or, or turn on your Bible app. But, but notice this. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord, right? Here's a, here's a call to worship. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is great, great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we're the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Okay, here's the first thing I just want you to see. That's a command. It's, it's God saying, worship me. It's a psalmist saying, worship God. 
He deserves your worship. And by the way, he alone deserves your worship. If I were to go to the Ten Commandments, right, the first four are all about, hey, you worship God and you worship Him alone. I could, I, could, I could see that if I even look at Psalm 95. What if I took where it says, to the Lord, and emphasized that, like gave the punch of the sentence there. Oh, so, oh, come, let us sing to the Lord and to the Lord only. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Don't sing that way for anybody else. Don't give this kind of glory to anybody else. Give it to God and give it to God alone. It's a, it's a command, here in Psalm 95, we didn't read it, but if you look down at Psalm 96, oh, sing to the Lord, verse 2, sing to the Lord, bless His name, tell of His salvation. Verse 3, declare His glory. That's a, that's a command. If you say, what's, the, what's worship? <coughs> the psalmist would say, look at verse 7, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the earth, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe, ascribe, do this. Okay, just simply like here's two psalms. I, I just want you to, I, I'm, I'm putting this as sort of like to have a flash in your mind that you're going to see this over and over and over and over in Scripture. Worship God. Worship Him. Worship Him alone. It is not a negotiable. It's not something we're called to do only when we feel like it. It's something that is a duty for us. Now, we, we, we really don't want to stay a duty. Ultimately, we want to see is that duty becomes a delight. Okay, so, so now look, I think we see that in Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the God of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Here's the psalmist going, you know what I expect? I, this is a command and I command you to come in and be joyful in this. That one of the things that ought to be producing is a heart that is bent toward God and says, man, I, I want to worship God. There is a joy, there's a thanks in that. And then he, he goes on in verses 3 through 7 and tells us why. Why should we be joyful about this God? What, 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 what's the reason for this? For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. And he goes on. So I'm saying the expectation of, of, the, of, of the psalmist of the Bible is that this worship is delighting in God. It's not just a duty, it's, it's delight. <clears throat> in Psalm 37, David's going to say, delight yourself in the Lord. Now, this is weird. That's a command, right? That's a command. I'm telling you what to do. Delight yourself in the Lord. And he'll give you the desires of your heart. Um, desire God more than anything. That's delight. And God will give you the desires of your heart. You see how that works? This is not a promise. Delight myself in the Lord and then, boy, it's the genie in a bottle. And I can ask God for whatever I want. I can think of a lot of things to ask God for, right? He's saying that if, if your desire is, if, if, if God is the ground of all of your desires, then, then God will give you your heart's desire, which is what? 
him. Remember last week we looked at that prayer where Jesus says, if you who are evil in Luke chapter 11 know how to give good gifts to those who ask, how much more will the Father give the gifts to those who ask him, even his Holy Spirit? If my delight is in God, God will give me my heart's delight. He'll, he'll give me him himself. Now, um, so it's, it's a duty. It's a delight. Okay, but, but the, the next thing I want you to see, it's, in, it's, it's those things in God as God. Now, here's what I mean by that. In God is revealed in Scripture. Not in God as I kind of uh, subjectively want Him to be. And you, know, you hear people say things like, I like to think of God as, and usually the description of the God that comes after I like to think of God as is something that's sort of, you know, just it feels warm to them but is, is rid of all of the edges. It's domesticated, defanged. It's not, it's not God in his fullness. It's the parts of God that you especially like and you're free to discard the parts you don't like. We're not free to do that. Right? You understand we are any more than you're free to do that with people you love. How can we say that we love God as, you know, when the Bible's saying, here's who he is, but we say, yeah, but I don't want that part. I don't like this part. I want to discard that and replace it with this. Then you don't love God. You love a figment of your imagination. And what we're called to do is love God as God. We're called to worship him and him alone. Now, I, I want to I take you somewhere this morning. Look, turn over to, to John chapter 4, because I, I want you to see in John chapter 4, you, some of you know this story, and I'm just going to summarize it for you, but it's, it's where we see Jesus meet up with a Samaritan woman, okay? And it's this sort of pivotal place in John. What's, what's happening there? Jesus heads into Samaria. Hey, disciples, we're going to go into Samaria. And the disciples are like, no, no, no. Jews don't go to Samaria. They take a circuitous route around Samaria to get to Jerusalem, to get wherever they go. They would literally, for them, the soil of Samaria was defiled and they would walk around it because these were a pagan people who sort of had a little bit of God of the Old Testament, but sort of rewrote things for their own, you know, the, the, the way they liked it. So no, we don't associate with them. And Jesus goes, no. In some ways, he goes, you watch this. I'm going to find myself a worshiper. So he goes into Samaria and he plants himself at a well. And the disciples go off, says, you guys go get something to eat. I'm staying right here. And it's the middle of the day and that's unusual. And he says, out comes a woman in the middle of the day. Now, now if you understand kind of what's happening there, you know that's not a usual thing to happen. Um, uh, women would go to the well. They would be the ones who would go grab the water, but they would go early in the morning when it was cooler or, or late in the afternoon when it was cooler. They would not go at midday when the sun was the hottest, which meant this was a woman who didn't want to interact with anybody else. Here was a woman who, uh, who, who wanted to stay away. She had something to hide, we could say. And so what happens? She comes down there and Jesus looks at her and says, would you draw me some water? And she says, how is it that you, a Jew, she can tell by the way he's dressed, probably can even tell that he's a rabbi, that, that how is it that you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for something to drink? Right? This is very unusual what's happening right here culturally. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm passing right through culture 
and I'm going to talk to you. And he says, he says, if you only knew who was asking you, then you would ask me for water and I would give you a water that would percolate up into a living well that would never run dry. That's his response to her. Now, she has not a clue what he's talking about. And she's like, well then, wow, like, okay, I want that water, right? She's thinking, is it a faucet? Like, I, you're kidding me. I never have to come back here again? And Jesus says, she says, I, I want that. And he goes, okay, go call your husband. This is odd, huh? I'll give you the water, but you gotta go call your husband first. And then she goes, I don't have a husband. And he says, oh, no, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've had four uh, and the one you're currently with is not your husband. Like, wow. Like, Jesus just goes straight for the jugular, doesn't he? Like, I'm, I mean, he goes right to the very, this is why she's coming out in the middle of the day. She's a pariah. She's the scarlet letter A. She's the one that doesn't want anybody to know this. She's ashamed. She's lived this lifestyle she wants nobody to know about. And Jesus goes, I know you. I know exactly what's going on in your heart. And we got to deal with this first. And, and, and the woman, <laughs> then she does a really weird thing. She doesn't go, how'd you know that? Or, oh, oh you know, nothing. She goes, oh, I perceive you're a prophet and our fathers worship on this mountain and you Jews worship in Jerusalem. What? She just completely changes the subject on him. I don't want to engage with what you're talking about, Jesus. But Jesus is after a worshiper. Now listen to what she just said. Our fathers worship this mountain. You Jews worship there. And um, in other words, what's the big deal? We're all worshiping the same God, right, Jesus? And Jesus responds and says, you worship what you don't know. We Jews Worship what we do know, for salvation comes from the Jews. And by the way, he doesn't say this, it's me, right? It's Jesus. Now, here's what he just did. You don't worship God at all. I mean, can you imagine this? Can you imagine, let's say you have a Mormon friend, and probably many of you do, and you're having a conversation about the things of God, and, and that Mormon friend says to you something like, yeah, we worship there, you worship there, it's all the same. And you say, no, it's not the same at all. You don't worship the same God as I worship. You don't. Now that, like, wow, that feels so harsh. Well, so, sometimes hard words are needed to soften hearts, right? Jesus didn't go around just blowing people away, but when it was necessary, he would speak right at them and say, you need to hear this, right? You need to hear this hard word. And he says, no, 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 we worship according to what we know. And then he says, look at, if you go down to verse, verse 21, you, 22, you worship what you know, John 4, you worship what you don't know, we worship what we know, for salvation comes the truth. But, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. Okay, so, so uh, look, lady, really at the end of the day, <coughs> 
It has nothing to do with the where and everything to do with the whom you are worshiping. And I'm telling you, you're not worshiping God. And what God requires, this God that I'm telling you about requires, is worship in spirit and in truth. Okay, so let's, let's talk about what Jesus just said there, okay? He's, he's saying, you, you need to know this. This is where real worship comes from. It's, it's worship in spirit. It's worship in truth. What, what's he saying there? Well, notice, you'll, you'll notice a lot of your translations have the word spirit. Uh, it's not capitalized. It doesn't mean worship in the spirit or the Holy Spirit. It, 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 we could say it this way. What God requires is worship from the heart and, and worship from the head, where those two things come together. What God requires is not pure, just only spiritual, emotional, you know, heart worship, we might say. What he requires is, is not only head worship, right, mere, mere formalism and dead orthodoxy. What God requires is that these two things come together. And they're going to come together for this woman, and part of the reason they're going to come together for this woman is she's going to finally realize there's this God who loves me, even me, who comes after me a harlot, who comes after me one who doesn't deserve this. And Jesus is going to produce a worshiper in spirit and in truth. This is what... God requires from us, not, not, uh, see, really, there's, there's no such thing as um, spirit only, and I don't mean, I don't mean Holy Spirit, <coughs> in the way Jesus is using it, spirit only worship, and there's no such thing as truth only worship, right? Spirit, that is, you know, let's call it emotional or whatever, the spirit only that disregards the truth is not worship, it's emotionalism, it's fanaticism. Okay, now, now l- l- let me say something, and please don't hear me criticizing this. I, I grew up, I grew up in, in a, in a, in a, within a Pentecostal framework, for which I'm incredibly grateful, by the way. But, but, but I'll just tell you my experience. I'm not broad-brushing Pentecostalism. It was very high spirit and emotion and very low truth. Very low, like, let's make sure that we understand and, and, and there's, there's knowledge with our worship. There's an understanding of what the Bible says about who God is, right? Some of you say, well, that wasn't my experience. What I came from was very high truth and very low spirit, right? Very, very, the heart wasn't engaged. It was, it was you know, ritual and, and, and mere liturgy. Not that there's anything wrong with liturgy, right? But there's this, it's just this, it's rote and it, there, was, there was no heart in it. And here's what Jesus says. I don't want either of those. I don't want dead formalism and I don't want high emotionalism. What I want is how those two things intersect. I want word and spirit. He's going to say of the Pharisees, here's your problem. These people, he's going to quote Isaiah, these people honors me with their lips, their hearts are far from me. Right? That's just dead formalism. See, now, now look, here's why I'm telling you all this, is, is I think we, we tend to be somewhere on that pendulum. Right? Very few of us 
are right there in that balance section where truth and spirit intersect. And like, man, man, my, 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 my head and my heart are fully engaged. Some of us find ourselves, we come in here and okay, I'm, I, I'm, I'm going through the motions, I'm doing this thing, but man, my heart's not in this. Or, you know, my heart's all in it, but, but boy, I don't really care about doctrine or truth. That's just, that's just not what God wants. He wants spirit. He wants truth. He, what, what happens when our heart and our head are disconnected in worship? It produces an aberrant form of worship. Like, like look, um, Isaiah, just, just read it sometime. Just your homework. Read Isaiah 1 and watch what, watch what God says, the, the warnings he has about people who sort of, we might even say fanatically come into worship. Or, or they come in and they go through this formal stuff of, you know, he says, who, who, I didn't ask you for this trampling of my courts. That's what he calls it. You run into worship. You lift your hands, he says. You go through all the sacrifices. You do these things. And I hate all of it. That is hard. I hate all of it because your heart and your head are disconnected. You don't mean. You walk out of here and it meant nothing to you. What I want are hearts and heads that are engaged in worship. Okay, so, so if that's what he wants, how do we get there? Okay, if it's this discipline duty of delighting in God personally, congregationally, how do I get there? Because look, I feel the duty part, right? Or I feel the emotion part, but I, I'm having a really hard time bringing these things together. Let me, let me, I, I, I really want to be practical, but let me, let me say a couple of things first. Um, we get there, like with any other uh, discipline, by practice, right? We, we, we keep worshiping. We, we keep doing this, right? Sometimes it feels like we're going through the motions. Sometimes it feels like, wow, there's real delight happening. But we keep coming back no matter how we feel. But, but you look and say, man, but, but, but my, my heart's not in this, right? My, my, my head is or my heart is or, or one or the other. How, how, do we, how do we bring those? Here's what I want you to understand. If you find... If you find that you are on one side of that pendulum, man, I'm, I'm worshiping and it's all emotion and I don't care about the truth, okay? I want you to recognize that for what it is. It's sin. If you are all truth and you, your heart is completely disengaged, I want you to recognize what that is. It's sin. What do we do with sin? We repent of it. And here's the, here's the interesting thing that I want you to notice is that, is that God can command you to feel certain things. Do you know this? Paul's going to say, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Is that a command or a suggestion? That's a command. But I don't feel joy. Irrelevant. Okay, I don't feel these these, these things the psalmist is calling me to do, come into his gates with thanksgiving and bring a joyful offering before God. I don't, I'll do the offering, I'll come, I'll do all that, but, but the joy's not there, the thanksgiving's not there. God, God is God and God can say to you, your emotions are wrong. What do we do? We repent. And here's what we're doing in repentance, not just, oh, it's God, like with any repentance, change my heart. I understand 
that my heart can't even do what it's commanded to do without your power, without your help. You've got to unite my heart to fear your name. You've got to incline my heart to your testimonies. You've got to give me the joy that I need. If you don't do it, God, it won't be there. I hope that just makes you understand how utterly dependent you are upon the Lord for everything, even your emotions. That's how you ought to feel. I don't feel. Look, hear me. I feel, this, is, this is me all the time. I don't feel the way I know the Bible calls me to feel about this or that, whatever that issue is. Lord, and I won't feel it unless you change my heart. This, by the way, I think it's one of the reasons Martin Luther on his you know, first theses that he, that he you know, nailed onto the Wittenberg door says that when our Lord and Master called us to repent, he meant that the life of the Christian, the whole life of the Christian would be one of repentance. <laughs> because we're constantly realizing that we are out of alignment with where God wants us to be. But we want to be there. Okay, so what are some practical things that we can do to help us? I want my head and my heart to be aligned in worship. Let me give you three things, okay? Number one, <coughs> this will just be a review. Read your Bible and pray. That sounds like kindergarten, doesn't it? That sounds like Sunday school, okay? That's discipline one and two, isn't it, right? We've been here all four weeks, and you know we're now into this, and we're, we've talked about reading our Bible, making, kind of getting the Bible into us, meditating on it, all those things, and praying. Why? Look, um, these are the ordinary means of grace in our lives. And if you will, if you neglect the ordinary means, don't expect that some extraordinary means are going to be the answer to what you need for your life. God's saying, look, I've, I've given you my word. I've given you the ability to call on me. And he's saying, look, if we would do these, if we'd be disciplined at these, if we would move from duty to delight in these, these things, right? What am I doing when I'm reading my Bible? I'm learning about the God that I'm praying to. And then I meditate on that word. And that word and the meditation of that brings me to a place where I'm in awe of God and I'm delighting in God. They're meant to feed one another. That's all I want you to see. So, so start there, right? That, that's what we do. Second of all, this might surprise you, study systematic theology. Now, let me, let me describe to you what I'm talking about here. <clears throat> if you've never heard that term, uh, you can Google it right now if you wanted and, or, or go on to Amazon and you will find dozens and dozens and dozens of books on systematic theology. What is that? All that is is taking and... Um, consolidating, uh, summarizing the teachings of Scripture on various subjects, right? Because Scripture doesn't do that for you. Now, again, this is not telling you a deficiency of Scripture. It's saying that Scripture doesn't say, hey, let me tell you everything there is to know about salvation. No, it's, we're just going to learn that as we walk our way through Scripture. Let me tell you everything there is to learn about the high priesthood of Jesus, whatever it is sanctification. Pick your issue, right? The, the, the Scripture won't lay it out for you. Systematic theology will do that. Now, what is it? It's, it's doctrine. It's, it's understanding the categories that the Bible discusses. Now, here's why I'm telling you this. Okay, I, I, I will tell you for me, and I literally have not met anybody yet that's an exception to this. That when I've met somebody who said, I've actually taken time to be in a class or to study with other people or to study on my own systematic theology, what the Bible has to say on various subjects, invariably, 
It's something that stirs up our affections for God. It actually increases my delight in God. What is, the, let's do it, what's biology? The study of life. What's theology? The study of God, theos. That's what you're doing. You're simply understanding more and more and more about God. I'll tell you this, coming from the background I did, where I tell you it was very high spirit and low truth, um, that, that when I started to study, man, it didn't decrease the spiritual part. It increased it. I was like, this is the God that I serve. I've never known these things. And I have seen that bear fruit over and over and over and over again in other people's lives. So we have a class called Christian Doctrine. I'm just going to make a shameless plug for. You can sign up today, okay? And, and, and that's exactly what it is. It's walking you through systematic theology, okay? And I promise you, and you, you begin to study those things, it will begin to, to merge head and heart, I hope, into a beautiful, like, duet of praise in your life, okay? That's the second thing. The last thing is, 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 is recognize the superiority of congregational worship. One of the reasons our head, heart suffers, one of the reasons we find ourselves not worshiping in spirit and truth is we sort of just try to do this on our own. I, I, if I've heard this once, I've heard it a thousand times, people will say things like, you know, I, I, I commune best, worship best, you know, worship God best in blank. And usually in the blank is anything but church. It's the ocean, it's the golf course, it's a mountain, it's on a hike, it's with some buddies and a beer and a bar. It's, it's something other than church. Now look, I don't doubt that you felt something. I don't. What I want to encourage you is to evaluate, we must always do this, evaluate how you feel with what Scripture says. Because if Scripture tells you that's not, <laughs> that's not the place where this happens or that's not the best place for it to happen, then you believe Scripture and not your feelings. Okay? That, that's, the, that's a call on us as, as believers right there. Again, I'm finding that I'm feeling things that are different than what the Bible tells me I ought to feel. So let me, let me break this down. I'm going to try to be quick and summarize quickly. Let, 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 let me show you what I mean. Here, first of all, God is more clearly revealed in congregational worship than in nature. Okay, I'll be, I'll be real brief here. Can you worship, get, is, there, is there a type of worship that happens in nature? Of course there is. The, 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 the psalmist is going to say in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the earth is handiwork, right? You don't, you, 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 you can look at the Grand Canyon or the redwoods or a mountain or snowflakes or whatever, and you can say, God is, this. whoever did this is great, right? If you're a Christian and you know it's God, you're like, man, God, you're magnificent. But that is not the same as hearing the Word of God preached to you, right? One we call, here's a, here's a systematic category for you, one we call general revelation, the other we call special revelation. Do you understand? You cannot be saved, you cannot be sanctified, you, 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 are, you are not to grow in the way you're supposed to grow merely through general revelation. Is general revelation a wonderful blessing to the Christian? Absolutely. But it is, is secondary to special revelation. Special revelation meaning what? Meaning the way that I know about salvation. The way that I know about Jesus Christ. How do I know that? 
the Word of God. Where do I hear the Word of God preached to me most explicitly? Where do I hear teachings about Jesus explicitly in the congregation? When I come to church. It's not out in nature. And so this is why I mean it's superior. Okay, now, here's the second thing. God is more glorified by congregational worship than he is by private worship. Okay, again, let me be quick here. <clears throat> Who are the most acclaimed, can I say this, glorified authors, athletes, artists, actors, whatever? They are those that have the most public acclamation, not the most private followers. Okay, like, like look, you remember, remember the little kerfuffle that happened? I, don't, I forget when it was. I don't watch the Oscars anymore, but bear with me here, right? You, I think I remember hearing that there was an Oscars, maybe it was last year, two years ago, where, where they were giving the awards, you know, all the biggies were happening, and when they would go to a commercial break, they'd kind of hand out, you know, these, these other awards. Here's the technical award for this and this and this. Well, okay, who was more glorified? The one that got their Oscar when the cameras were off and the commercials were on, or the, or the ones that when the cameras came back on, the billions of people around the world heard about this actor, this director, this picture? Well, of course, the, the answer is obvious. You understand the greatest day in history will not be the day that people individually, solely on their own, worship Jesus. The greatest day in history will be when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The greatest day in history will be when every tribe and nation and tongue gather together around the throne of God to worship Him. This is, this is what we're doing. We're rehearsing for that. But, but, but finally, God is more glorified. Congregational worship is more edifying than private worship. Okay, like, like look, um, wonderful. I hope you worship in private. I told you, we should do this personally. But we have to recognize there's something about when I come together. Do you know this, Christian, right? You know that when you became a, a Christian, you, you, were, you were filled with the Spirit. The Spirit of God came to dwell in you. You didn't have part of Him, you had all of Him. Do you also know that doesn't mean that because you are filled with the Spirit, you have all the gifts of the Spirit? You don't. None of us do. So Paul, in Ephesians 5, when he says, be filled with the Spirit, he's not talking to an individual there. He's saying, you all be filled with the Spirit. How? Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, coming together. That's a Spirit-filled church. A Spirit-filled church is not just because one charismatic gift is operating. It's because people come together and we are edified because we're all there and now the fullness of the Spirit is operating. You're exercising your gift. I'm exercising my gift. That's more edifying. It's more edifying for the believer. It's more edifying for the unbeliever. You know, Paul says this to the Corinthians. He says, look, he's trying to correct them. You guys are kind of crazy and you're doing some weird things, but listen to me. He says, I, I wanna, I'm not telling you to stop. I'm saying, get this right and here's what'll happen. If you'll worship God, we might even say this way, in spirit and truth, Christ, Corinthians, you know what'll happen? People will walk in and they will say, surely God is in this place. I, I've heard this over and over throughout the years. I, I walked into your church 
And I just, like, something's different. God, I, I felt the presence of God in that place. I praise God for that if that's true. I was just reading a story this week of a woman. It didn't happen here at Foothill, but, but she, was, she, she was walking past a church and she heard singing and she walked in and she, she starts to listen and she says, I, the way she described it was like I could just feel the presence of God. And she says she began to weep and she made her way, crawled her way to the front of the church and, and was weeping at the altar. And these people came and gathered around her and they were praying for her. And somebody shared the gospel with her and she, and she ends up putting her faith in Jesus Christ and becoming a Christian and it changes her entire life. I have never, ever heard of that happening to someone when they watched you in private worship. That happens all the time in churches. You follow me? Say, so look, you're, you got your Bible open at a coffee shop, awesome. You're listening to, you know, worship tunes and you're, you're enjoying God in that moment, wonderful. I doubt anybody is walking up to you, you know, tears in their eyes, falls at your feet and says, I want to know Jesus. Surely God is in this place. That happens in congregational worship. See this? So, so Christian, we're, we're called to this discipline. It's a duty that I hope for all of us turns to the light because, because the, 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 the truth and spirit come together. As we read our Bibles, we pray, we study, we understand the truth. It increases our affections and we come together. I think that's how we grow in the spiritual discipline of worship. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that it rebukes and corrects and trains in righteousness. And Lord, you've called us to worship. You've called us to, to worship you in spirit and truth. It's not a suggestion, it's a command. But God, we find ourselves so often where, where it's one or the other of those. And God, our desires to see that be both. Our desires to be inflamed with a passion for you, but inflamed with a passion for who you really are and who the Bible reveals you to be. And so help us, Lord. We, we, want, we want to be people that worship you in spirit and truth. We want to be people who delight in the God of our salvation. And so help us today, Lord. And God, I pray, Lord, perhaps there's somebody here this morning who, like the person I just even described, walked in here and perhaps they feel the presence of God and wonder what it means to be in a relationship with you, that today would be the day where they hear, God. They hear that, that you are a God, that, that those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, that, that if they will confess their sins, you'll be faithful and just to, to, to forgive their sins and cleanse them from unrighteousness. You're a God who says if you'll repent and turn from that and turn to faith in Jesus, then they can, they can know eternal life, God. And so I pray today, Lord, you would grant the miracle of salvation. You would open the eyes of the blind, unstop the ears of the deaf, Lord, even right now through the proclamation of your word. And through that, they might come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Help us all, Lord, that we'd return again and again to the God of our salvation and worship you for who you are and for all that you deserve. And we ask this in Jesus' name.